Now, this past week has been bursting with political drama, right? Republicans without any signature legislative victories in sort of the first year of Trump's term were scrambling to accomplish what has really stymied Congress for over 30 years now. What seemed even inconceivable just a few days ago, that is comprehensive tax reform. But if you know the story, key Republicans were holding out over various concerns like the deficit or DACA or the ability to deduct various state and local taxes. And it looked again like the Republicans were going to come a few votes short, sort of embarrassingly so, as they did with the Obamacare repeal. And yet, while you were sleeping the early hours of Saturday morning, the Senate passed the bill. They did what seemed inconceivable. For apparently in just those last hours, those last 24 hours or so, there was a a flurry of meals and there were various deals being struck and there were last minute handwritten notes on nearly 500 pages of legislation. And CNN reported that in those final hours, those holdouts had been quote unquote converted, right? They had been converted. Now, see, I read a story like that, and I think, yeah, I know why people get cynical when we use that word conversion, when we use that word conversion, right? Like a recent governor who switched parties in the hopes that Trump might cut him a deal on some unpaid taxes, right? Or we think of college football coaches like Jimbo Fisher, his, his conversion, you might say, this week from, from Florida State to Texas A&M. All for the meager son of $75 million over 10 years. The richest, I think, deal in collegiate history, right? Because for many, this is all conversion is, right? Conversion is simply about what's politically expedient. Or it's all about financial reward. Or it's all about sort of conforming to, to some kind of social allegiances. But friends, is that all that religious conversion is? Is that all religious conversion is? You know, merely a matter of exchanging, so to speak, one set of preferences for another, such as a pastor for a priest, or maybe raw denim instead of robes. What is religious conversion? Well, I want us to think about that question, and I want us to think about it in the lens of Mark chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there again this morning. Mark chapter 7, we're going to be verses 31 to 37. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 843, page 843. And if you're just joining us this morning, you're stepping into this study, we've been in it for a number of months now, and, and we've got to go back about 2,000 years. That's where the gospel of Mark takes place. Right, we're in the fringes of the Roman Empire. There's a Jewish rabbi. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, right? went to all the wrong schools, doesn't have the support of the religious establishment. And yet, nonetheless, this rabbi has taken Israel by storm. Right? All the healings and, and the teachings have him all over the headlines. Every night, this guy is the lead story. Right? And crowds are now flocking to Jesus in record numbers. But as his popularity increases, so does the pressure upon him by the religious and the political elite. And we saw last week as, as they sort of turn up the heat on Jesus, right? Jesus is sort of forced to go underground. Right? He, he flees across the border. He heads into Gentile lands, that is foreign lands. And he wants to lay low for a while, give it some time, teach the disciples, let some things simmer down. But even there in these foreign lands, he can't escape notice. 
And in a truly unexpected turn of events, we saw last week, right, one least likely to receive Jesus' favor expresses tremendous faith in him. Right? Her daughter is miraculously healed. Right? It seems that God indeed has a plan not just for the Jews, but a plan for the whole nation, for all the nations of the earth. And so with that in mind, we pick up the story, chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. Beginning in verse 31. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, friends, just a confession. When I, when I read this story this week, I thought, right, <laughs> oh, great, another healing, which is terrible, but I confess it. And, and I say so because it's amazing, right? At one level, right, Jesus, he's cleansed lepers. He's made the lame to walk. He's, he's cured the crippled. He's calmed the waves. He's delivered demon-possessed. He's fed the thousands, raised the dead. He's walked on water. I mean, what hasn't Jesus done? What more could I possibly say? We've got another healing. What am I going to say? But, oh, friends, when you read the Bible on your own and you get to a point where, like, I've seen this before. I know this story. This is just like that other thing I read. Take a moment and just stop. Trust God has something for you in it. Dig a bit deeper. Look a bit more closely. Because yes, it is another healing. Yes, Jesus is the great physician. That's true. But I think as we stare at this passage, a new shape begins to form. We begin to see in our passage a wonderful parable of conversion. A wonderful parable of conversion. Now, why do I say that? You know, chapters 1 through 8, Mark has been sort of the burning question is who is this Jesus, right? Who is this Jesus? Pharisees see him as a heretic. Herod sees him as a political hazard and as a threat. Crowds, right, they largely see him as a healer. Others, okay, maybe he's a herald, maybe he's a teacher and a prophet. But the disciples, they haven't done a lot better than any of these other folks, right? Back in 441, the disciples are left perplexed, right? Who is this? They don't know. Who is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. In 652, when at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, they're still confused. In 718, just two weeks ago, Jesus chides them for still lacking understanding. And juxtaposed against their confusion, we saw last week the Syrophoenician woman, right? Her great confession of faith, that set against their great confusion. And yet, despite that, they still don't get it. Because we're going to have another miraculous feeding next week. And Jesus will say after that, 8.17, just look ahead. 
Jesus says to them, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Right? They're spiritually obtuse. All the instruction they've received for all the hours and the time they have walked and talked with Jesus. It seems the disciples here, even in chapter 8, they're still in the dark. They're still asking questions. Who is this? While the Gentiles are making professions. Right? He has done all things well. The disciples still don't have ears to hear. They don't have mouths that speak the truth. They don't have eyes to see. Which is why in these chapters we're given two stories. One of a man who is deaf, right? Who can't hear, a mouth that can't speak. And in verse 32 of our passage, right? Notice what? He's brought to Jesus. His friends, what do they do? They beg Jesus to lay his hands on him. In verse 33, what does Jesus do? He takes the man aside privately. And in verse 33, he he spits, then places his hand upon the affected organs And the man is given what? Ears to hear. Ears to hear. And then look forward to 822. Another story, 822 to 26. Notice again we have another man who's also, like the deaf and mute man, brought to Jesus. Again, his friends, what do they do? They beg Jesus to touch him. What does Jesus do? Again, he takes him away, takes him aside privately, away from and out of the village Again, Jesus, what does he do? He spits. He places his hands on the affected organs. The man's given eyes to see. Each one of those stories is a living parable. And the parallels between those two stories are unmistakable. It's why I tried to highlight them. The disciples don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. And so Jesus, in these stories, is depicting physically... What must happen to them spiritually? I want, that's what I want you to see. Jesus, in these stories, real stories, true stories, that's why I said they're living parables, but he's depicting physically in these two healings what must happen to the disciples spiritually. Right? The physical depictions after spiritual realities. And if you're still not convinced that's what's going on, chapter 7, verse 34 in our text Right, Jesus sighs, right, he utters that Aramaic word, ephatha. Now naturally, Jesus in saying be opened, which is just what that means, when he's saying be opened, he's, he wants at one level the man's ears to be opened so that he can hear. But you know, that verb for be open there, it's not an especially common one. And when it's used in the Bible, it's regularly used not just of physical hearing, but of spiritual understanding. So all the way back in Genesis 3, 5, when Satan is tempting Adam and Eve, saying they should eat from the forbidden tree, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Same word. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? Spiritual understanding, not merely eyes that can see. Or in Luke 24, when the disciples are with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus is risen, and they say to each other, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? 
Or verse 45, then he opened their minds. Jesus did to understand the scriptures. Again, opening there of spiritual understanding, not merely a spiritual, um, physical opening of the ears. Or Acts 16, if you know the story with Lydia, one who heard the apostles, a seller of purple goods, Acts 16, 14, who was a worshiper of God. And what did the Lord do? He opened her heart. Same verb, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, right? In each case, being opened is a reference to spiritual understanding. This is what the disciples lack. This is why we have this story. It's a parable of what must happen in their own hearts spiritually. But it's not just the disciples, right? It's given for us as well, right? We, all of us, everyone here stands spiritually where this deaf and mute man stands physically. That's where we all are. We're in need of ears that can truly hear, can understand, and thus mouths that are able to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. So then if we would enter into this parable, this living parable of this man who is given his hearing and is able to speak, if we enter into it, I think we're going to discover five truths about conversion. I think we're going to see in this text five truths about conversion. And the first is this. It's not optional, but essential. It's not optional, but essential. That's the first thing we see. Now, admittedly, this when we talk about religious conversion, this isn't language we're especially comfortable with. Right? So if, if you think outside of religion, you think of like converting to become vegan or vegetarian, right? That's optional. Now, I know proponents who are very ardent about it may, may say it's exceedingly important, and it may be important, I don't know, but at either rate, no one would say your eternal soul hangs on whether or not you're a vegan or a vegetarian, or converting from Coke to Pepsi, right, from Chuck Taylors to Vans, from Matt to Chanel, whatever it might be, all optional. It's based on taste, preference, and style, costs, whatever it might be. But, you know, when it comes to religious conversion, I think many see religious conversion as something that's optional, right? Religion is like a, kind of like an aid. Religion is out there, various forms, enabling us simply to be better people. So maybe I'll borrow a little bit of karma from Hinduism, maybe some of the disciplined prayer of Islam, maybe some rosary beads of Catholicism, maybe I'll, I don't know, tattoo a weeping Mary to my shoulder or something, whatever works, Right? We pursue what it might work, whatever works. So whether I'm Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish or Catholic, all that really matters at the end of the day is these things work for me and help me to become a better person, help me to become a nice person. And maybe religion helps. But maybe you're like, oh, you know, yoga helps me or sleeping in on Sundays helps me. At the end of the day, it's optional, right? Do what works for you. That's how we think about religion. And so religious conversion is being not optional but essential. Oh, that makes us feel uncomfortable. But that's exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's not casual about this subject. He doesn't say it's optional. He says it's essential. Now, as we pick up the story in verse 31, Jesus is traveling from Tyre up through Sidon all the way over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And some will have noted this is a bit like trying to go from Fayetteville to Little Rock through Kansas City. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mark made it up. Mark's confused. No, I think Jesus recognizes there's still heat. And so he's trying to stay in Gentile lands. He's trying to stay away from Jewish political and religious authorities. And he lands on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And there he's confronted 
by a man who was, verse 32, deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, it's interesting because that word can mean, for deaf, can mean deaf and mute. Right? But he uses two words. We're going to come back to why he uses two words. But he's deaf and mute. He can't speak. He can't hear. And I think if you're a bit like me, you might think that's tragic. And maybe you think, ah, but if I kind of had to choose between blindness and not being able to, to hear or speak, I, I might choose what this guy was struggling with. Now, I don't really feel able to enter into these things much, but from what I've read and what some physicians have said, you know, many say the social pain and the, and the stigma experienced by the deaf. So the various awkward stares, right? The confusion when, when you speak and they fail to respond to you and you look at them in confusion. The humiliation of, of being thought as dumb because you don't speak or when you speak, you speak kind of funny and that can all be witnessed and observed. They say that kind of humiliation is brutal, right? It makes it exceedingly hard, almost unbearable. And of course, in Jesus' day, they don't have formal sign language. So this man effectively is unable to communicate, at least unable to communicate effectively. So Jesus is presenting this man to us as a truly hopeless man. He's in a desperate situation. And that's the point. That's the point of his physical condition, And Jesus is saying, listen, that man's physical condition is analogous to your spiritual condition. It's a hopeless condition. It's a desperate condition. And we are desperately, therefore, in need of healing. Now, listen, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, what I want to help you see is that this is Jesus' own assessment of your spiritual state. And it's not a good report. This isn't the kind of report card we want to get from a physician. And it's not just true of you, it's true of everyone born into this world. We're those who can't hear truly the words of God and understand them. We're those who don't have mouths that want to speak of his goodness and his praise. We can't hear him because our ears are plugged, because our tongues are in fact chained. You know, if you look down to verse 35, when it says the man's tongue was released, the English is rather flat, the Greek's very vivid. It, it literally reads, the chain of his tongue was broken. Right? The picture is that we're captives, we're slaves. We're slaves to our sin by choice. We never sin against our will, but also by constraint. Right? We do no other, we want to do no other. We can, in fact, do no other. Right? We're prisoners. Which is why conversion is never about becoming the better me or improving ourselves. Right? It's about a need to be freed. It's about being deaf and dumb and needing tongues where chains are broken and where ears are unstopped so we can genuinely hear and know God. It's why in the Bible, conversion is so much different religiously than merely changing political parties. It's not like aligning with a new sports franchise. Right? Conversion is making slaves free. It's a rescue effort unlike any other, and it is essential, which is why God must do it. Friends, that gets us to our second truth. It's not man's will, but God's work. That's the second thing I think we see as we see this parable of conversion. It's not man's will, but God's work. Now listen, you live in the same society and culture I do, and you know that there's one thing our culture sort of drills into us, especially while we're young, is that anything is possible. 
right? The world is our oyster. I gave that valedictorian speech. Like, we all hear it. I know it. Anything we want within our reach, it's within your capabilities. And if the possible seems impossible, right, what are you supposed to do? You do the impossible, because we can do the impossible. That's, that's open to us. It's out there. But the reality is this man couldn't heal himself. He couldn't heal himself. We can't heal ourselves. That's what this parable is teaching. It's not finally a matter of the human will. God's work, it's his work first. And I think that's why one of the curious aspects of this healing is how much detail we're given. I don't know if you've noted that. In comparison to other healings, there's a lot more detail in this particular healing. The the command in the past, right, Jesus has either commanded a healing, maybe he's touched one, or more often people touch him, but not a lot transpires. We're often talked, discuss more of sort of the, the conversation, the dialogue, like last week. But in this count, it's elaborate, all kinds of details. We're told verse 33, right, Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. He touches his tongue. He looks up to heaven. He sighs. He speaks ephaphtha. And I think one of the reasons why Mark explains in detail what Jesus did is so that we might be abundantly clear this is Jesus' work. It's his work. The man couldn't hear. Jesus, in this case, can't simply explain to him, I'm doing this. So what does Jesus have to do? Well, he has to sort of employ his own form of sign language with the man. right? He has to show the man. So he puts his fingers in the man's ears to say, I'm going to remove that blockage in your ears. He puts his hand to his tongue, his fingers to that tongue, so that the man knows that it is Jesus who is breaking the chains upon his tongue. Now, confessedly, when we get to the spinning part, that, that throws us. Right? That's a little awkward. So imagine just, if you would, you're, you're heading into a doctor's office, you're not feeling particularly well, they ask you to open your mouth, and you're expecting at that point the doctor to take that little tongue depressor, say, ah, but instead of taking out that tongue depressor, you open up your mouth and he... <laughs> yeah, I think you, you would shut that mouth, you'd bat, whoa, I didn't sign up for this, right? I don't want to know what you had for lunch, right? Okay, whatever it might be. Right, it's not just odd, it strikes us as gross, But, you know, in the ancient world, water was associated with life and health. And so water produced by a living creature was like living water. It was powerful. It was understood to have particular powers. And and so they understood. And Jesus, in this sense, is almost condescending to their understanding, even if it's a misguided one medically, He's trying to help them see there's, there's going to be living water here, but not of a kind you're expecting. Right? So we don't go into a pharmacy in CVS and say, hey, what aisles to spit on? But they would, frankly, you know, if it was a man of great importance. And Jesus, again, he's, he's taking upon himself that understanding that it had healing properties. And, and it was common in such rituals at that point for this miracle worker, if he was, to, to utter a word of power. It was always a secret word. No one else knew it. So at the end of this elaborate ritual, which would include saliva, he then uttered the secret word. And that power of the, that word rather was effectual. It had power. So you know that expression, sort of abracadabra, you know, when the rabbit jumps out of the hat. It comes from that very same image. 
But notice Jesus steps into their expectations and then he explodes them, right? Because he does what they don't expect. He simply says, be opened. No magic words, no superstitious formulas, right? He's not manipulating the powers through secret words. So when he looks up to heaven, it's his own way of saying, this isn't magic, this is God. You are being healed by him. He is healing you. God alone is able to do this, right? It's his own form of sign language to drive home. This is God's work. It's his work. And what does this man do? He has done nothing. I mean, stuck out his tongue maybe. He hasn't done anything. God, through Jesus, has done it all. And friends, that's what it's like in conversion. That's what this parable is helping us to understand, right? No one here is a Christian because they're good, It's not dependent upon us. If if we have been converted, it's not our goodness that has saved us, right? We we weren't active. We were passive like this man. This was God's doing, if you know Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Can dead people do many good things? Dead people can't do anything. While we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Or Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you have children, think about, think about if your child came up to you and said, I want you to love me, so I'm gonna do all this impressive stuff for you today. How would you respond to your child? The list better be really long. It better be done perfectly. I'm going to be following you at every step. No, we wouldn't respond like that to our own children. No, you'd say, I don't love you because of what you do. I don't love you because of your long list of accomplishments. I love you because you're my child. I love you because I've given you my name. I love you because I've committed myself to you. I love you because you're mine. You're mine. That's why I love you. Friends, if conversion is just how we bring our impressive list of accomplishments to God, it's no longer about grace and Christianity becomes like every other religion. It is merely a religion of self-salvation, right? If it's about what we bring to the table, then God is obligated to save us. It's no longer then about his grace, but it's about his duty towards us, right? God owes us. If it's our accomplishments, if it's our affections, our actions that finally convert us, then realize all the cross becomes is it becomes a means of our own self-justification. It's not how Jesus saves us. It's how Jesus enables us to save ourselves. And friends, in that case, the gospel is not just turned upside down. The gospel is, in fact, denied. It's denied because conversion is God's work before it is ever ours. But it's not just his work in the abstract. It's not just something we all inherit by means of being human. And I think this brings us to our third truth I want us to see. It's not universal, but personal. Not universal, but personal. Not universal because... Genuine conversion isn't experienced by all. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the Gospels. We wouldn't have Jesus giving us these stories. It's not found in every religion. And it's personal 
because part of what we're seeing is, in case you haven't witnessed yet, it's about Jesus. It's about him. It's about this unique individual. You know, the Jews divided the world into two groups, right? Jews themselves and everyone else. And everyone else were Gentiles. And as we've seen, they didn't have an especially high opinion of Gentiles. And not surprisingly, Gentiles didn't have an especially high opinion of Jews. Now, as you recall, last time that Jesus was in the Decapolis, it was in Mark 5. You remember with the Gerasene demoniac? Right? And what do all the people do? They beg him to leave. Right? The little piggies never made it to market. Remember that story? All right. They don't like him being there. But it's remarkable the change. The change of the opinion. Just makes you wonder. Do you remember 520? Remember that man wants to follow Jesus? And Jesus says, you're not going to follow me among the 12. You're going to go proclaim me to the people. It's interesting now that when he comes back, I don't know how long it's been, he comes back, and all of a sudden the people seem to know who to go to. That man had a faithful ministry. He's proclaiming what these men will later do, what we are to do. But at any rate, that's a side note. right? So he's coming and I think what's amazing is that these Gentiles, they're coming to Jesus. They've perhaps heard this man who was healed, and they're going to go to him. They're not trying to get an appointment at the Mayo Clinic. Right? They're, they're not trying to enroll him at Gallaudet University, a very famous university for the deaf in D.C., right? They are bringing him to Jesus, a Jewish rabbi. A lot of their friends probably would have considered this Jewish rabbi a quack. You don't go to Jewish rabbis, right? We've got temples. We've got sacrifices you make for this stuff. And notice, they don't go to Jesus like he's one option among many. You know, Jesus, yeah, we could go to you or we could go to that psychic healer. It really doesn't matter which one we go to because it'll all all end up the same. No, they go to Jesus. They seek him out and they beg him. That's a strong word. They beg him. They implore him. They recognize it's either Jesus or their buddy's got no hope. It's like the leper back in chapter 1, verse 40. What does he do? He begs Jesus. Or it's like Jairus with his sick little daughter. What does he do? He begs Jesus in 523. Or the countryside in Gennarasen in 523, right? They, or rather, right in 656, when they beg Jesus, they bring everyone and they beg Jesus, hey, just let them touch you. They implore him. Because we all come to Jesus, every one of us. That's what this Mark's helping us see. We come as beggars. Because this man, this individual, he alone can satisfy. We all come as beggars because he alone is the living bread. What's he going to do in the next chapter? Bread from heaven. Prove he is this living bread. That's the feeding of the 4,000. And here's the thing. Everyone who comes to Jesus begging like this, they're never refused. You know, even the demons in chapter 5, when they begged to go to the pigs, Jesus even gave them what they wanted, oddly enough. Not the leper or Jairus or the sick masses, not the friends of the poor, deaf, and mute man. Right? If you come to Jesus in need, if you come in need begging like this, he doesn't cast you away. He doesn't cast you aside. He never says, you know, I don't have the time. He never says, you're, you're beneath my dignity. Never says, I have more important things to do. I have more important people to heal. No, what does he do with this man? He takes this man aside privately, treating him not just as a problem to be solved, but as an individual to be loved. And he looks him in the eye, and he, and he touches him, and he communicates with him. He heals him. Friends, that's the nature of converting, saving faith. 
It's not a feeling. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's not irrational. A Disney movie happened to come on with my daughter, and that's how they describe faith. And I thought, Christians must not have written the script, because no Christian would say these dumb things about faith. Sadly, that's what the world thinks we believe. But it's not any of these things. But I also want you to see, it's not also faith that saves us. I want you to hear that again. It's not faith that saves us. I mention that because when we talk about conversion, so often that's how we talk about it. We make it all about our faith. So when we talk about conversion, what do we say? We say, well, we we prayed a prayer. We checked a box. We raised a hand. We walked an aisle. We had an emotional high at some retreat, and we appealed to that. And so then when we hit those hard moments, what do we wonder? Oh, was I sincere enough? Did I really mean it? No, did I really mean it? And we begin to second guess ourselves. We become insecure. We're like, maybe I didn't mean it. Maybe my faith wasn't great enough. And so what do we do? We, we go back and we do it over again. We, we pray the prayer again or, or we rededicate ourselves again or we get baptized again. That one particularly gets under my skin, you know that. Because none of those things are in the Bible. None of those things are in the Bible. The Bible doesn't have such categories. Were we sincere enough? Right? Listen, that's what you say when you think faith saves you. But what did we just read in Ephesians 2 a moment ago? We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means. It's the instrument. Faith isn't the object. Faith isn't what we put our hope in. God's grace to us in Christ, that's what saves So faith isn't something that God's evaluating and saying, yeah, it wasn't intense enough. Do it again. Pray it again. Try harder. Otherwise, we're just striving more and more to make it more truly effective. Faith is, it's trusting. And and such trusting is only as good as the object of that trust. So it's not about our sincerity. It's not even about our feelings. It's about trust in a person. Trust in this person, Jesus. And friend, we've already seen it can be the smallest seed of faith, the faith of a mustard seed. But if that faith is in this Jesus, if it has this object it is clinging to, it is more than enough faith. It has this object. It has Jesus. Friends, he is more than enough. Now, if you've come not a believer, you can know this Jesus To have this miracle performed in your life, to have ears unstopped, to have mouths that speak truth, to understand yourself and understand God fully, you can have that relationship with him. And it's a very simple thing. It's a matter of recognizing this Jesus for who he is and all of his compassion, all of his wonder, all of his grace, all of his might. He is a good savior. And as you look to him, the one who would eventually go to the cross to bear the sins of all of those who would repent of their sin and turn and trust in this one, then rise from the grave, proof God had vindicated him, he'd accepted that sacrifice, you can be forgiven. It's not complicated, right? It's not, a, it's not a big routine. There aren't a bunch of hoops to jump through. It's simply a matter of saying, this Jesus is worth it. This Jesus is unlike any other I know. And I'm gonna turn from my sin and place my trust in him. And I'm gonna seek to follow him whatever the cost. Friends, that's all you have to do to be saved. 
Right? If you want to talk to me about that, I'll be up here afterward. You want to talk to any of the friends that maybe brought you, all the people at the doors, we'd love to talk with you more about that. But this brings us to our fourth truth. It's not individualistic conversion, not individualistic. It's communalistic. Not an individualistic, but communalistic. And I say that because as we think about conversion so often, conversion, it's just about individuals getting saved. In its worst forms, conversion treats everyone as a number, right? Get them saved, that's it, move on, as if God's purposes stop with all individuals at the moment of salvation or, or at the point of conversion. Now listen, don't misunderstand me, don't get me wrong. Individuals getting saved is a glorious thing. God knows every one of them. I'm just want you to see, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. In the Bible, we're, we're converted out of the world and into the church. We're converted into living communities. Living communities that can display the power of the gospel far more magnificently than any one person simply can. So how did Jesus say the world would know who are his disciples? By the quality of the individual life you lived? Well, no, by the way in which you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way in which living communities follow Christ together. That's how the world's to know who are his disciples. That's John 13, 34, and 35. And so it is with this deaf and mute man. And now some of you are like, what community is this guy being converted into? Well, interestingly, we've already got the garrison demoniac in 520. So evidently that guy's out preaching something. So there's at least one believer, it seems, there. But then even when describing this man, I noted that Mark uses two words. He's deaf and he has a speech impediment. Deaf actually covers both. So why does he use the second word, speech impediment? Particularly because that word's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, when you come across a word that you don't recognize, it usually piques your interest. Like, why did he use that word? What does that word mean? Maybe you grab a dictionary, you look it up. That's what you should do. Keep a dictionary on your phone. Right? That's what you should do. Like, what's going on? And these are verbal communities. They wouldn't have Bibles in their hands. Unless you were very wealthy, you wouldn't be able to afford one. And so this is being read to them. And they hear that word, and they're like, what's up with that word? Why would, why would Mark use that word? I've not heard it before. At least, I don't think, have I heard it before? You know, because this word isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. It is used just once elsewhere in the Bible, one other place. And it's in Isaiah 35, right, that Samantha read to us earlier this morning. In Isaiah 35, it's a chapter, really the turning point in that book. There's been a series of judgments upon Edom and Egypt and Tyre and Israel and Jerusalem. And in 35, that judgment, that tone shifts to joy as God promises to redeem not just an individual, but a whole people and cause them to dwell again in safety and prosperity and blessing. And it's not just Jews. If you remember that reading earlier, Isaiah 35 two, Isaiah talks about the desert wastelands of Lebanon receiving the joy of the Lord. And of course, where's Tyre and Sidon? It's Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon is Lebanon. And What's to mark this great coming of God's Messiah? What's to mark sort of the inbreaking of God's kingdom as this Messiah comes? Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute. And it's that word mute right there. The tongue of the speech impediment. The speech impaired. Only other time it's used. 
those with a speech impediment, they will sing for joy. Chains broken. Mark is making a deliberate illusion. He's leaving a, a clue. I was talking with Ryan Trogan about this text. He's like, you get a little Easter egg, right? Dropped right in there. So that if you've got ears to hear, and you hear that word that Mark uses, and you're like, wait a minute. Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament, particularly the latter chapters. They well might know it. You're like, I know this word. This is a promise of something. What's happening here? And for those with eyes to see, he's repeating it so they can understand, right? He can understand what's taken place. And Mark records his friends repeating this again as they finish, as they go, right? They, they give, notice at the end of our verses, they give a two-point sermon. They're so excited. They start preaching immediately. Two-point sermon. He has done all things well, point one, in allusion to Genesis 131. What does God do there in Genesis 131 at the end? He does literally all things well. So the creative work of the Father in Genesis 1 is being, convict, is being pictured in the converting work of the Son, Mark 7. Right? Again, conversion, God's work, not our wills. Another reinforcement. But point two, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Because in Isaiah 35, the promise is what? That God will have a corporate people. The ransomed of the Lord will return to him. Friends, that's why if you're a Christian, your care is never simply about yourself. If you think God's plans for you as a Christian begin and end with you, you've entirely misunderstood the Bible from beginning to end, corporate in nature. Of course, I don't mean to put those in antithesis. Like It's not that he doesn't care about you, but he doesn't care about you to the exclusion of all others. So how do you know if that's you? How do you know if that's, that, that's your risk, your struggle? Well, you know, are you more concerned about your own personal witness? how you're following Jesus as opposed to the, the witness of this church? You know, how often is your mind concerned more with your witness versus this church's witness? Maybe the health of your spiritual life. Does that dominate your own thought life or the health of the spiritual life of other members of this church? Now, again, I don't mean to place those at odds with one another, but we tend to view our own spirituality in individualistic terms, Right? Longer devotionals, more fervent prayers, more people witnessed to. But genuine spiritual maturity is marked by having a love for God's people, a corporate people. It's born out in a desire to help them, to spend time with them, to disciple them, to gather with them, to pray with them, as we, as we will even later today on Sunday night, right? to encourage them, to invest in them. It's why God's people are always concerned with the clarity of who are those people, Church membership, or, or why God's people are concerned with the purity of such people, right? Church discipline. Because God's plan is just, it's much bigger than you and much bigger than me. It's a plan to have a people for himself, Jew and Gentile. And friends, that brings us to our final truth. And that is conversion, right? It's not pedestrian. It is praiseworthy. Not pedestrian, but praiseworthy. Pedestrian, I don't mean like walkers. I mean like simple, plain mundane, easily ignored. And that's what we see, verse 27, right? When they witness what Jesus has done and stopping this man's ears and him speaking, they were astonished beyond measure, right? Double superlative, right? It's a big deal. They take note of it. They have never seen anything like this. And we've seen a lot of amazing things, but, you know, I have a friend who, uh, who got ill very young, 
and it was seriously ill and, and lost their hearing entirely. Now, today they have cochlear implants, and they received them a number of years back. And so they're able to communicate a little bit better, but they still have to read lips. And even when they hear, they don't always hear particularly well, right? They can't hear through the phone, obviously, uh, well, um, because they can't see lips. And they speak, and they speak, and they've learned to speak quite well, but you can tell there's just something off. And yet I think what's remarkable is that even after years of practice, right, she's much better, but this guy in mere moments, he speaks plainly. He speaks clearly. He speaks intelligibly, right? This doesn't happen even in today's standards with all of modern medicine. Jesus does something marvelous. So it's no wonder they're astonished. And what do they do? They're told not to do this, but they can't help themselves. The more Jesus charged them, verse 36, the more zealously they proclaimed it. That word proclaim is preach. The same thing the demoniac did in 520 in Decapolis, they're doing it again. They're preaching Right, Because what Jesus had done, it wasn't pedestrian, it wasn't plain, it was, it was magnificent, it was praiseworthy. My friends, does the work of Jesus, does this Jesus in this text, does it amaze you? Does it amaze you? Or are you regularly amazed by other things? I mean, what most gathers your attention Because I think what you most speak about, what amazes you, reflects a lot of what your heart values, of what your heart desires. You know, so what amazes you? I'm just thinking about this past week. Constant chatter. Who's our AD? Who's our football coach? Right? A lot of people asking that question. Some people are at least. At least we're not Tennessee. Um, Stranger Things, out for season three. All right, that amazes some people. A lot of chatter about that. The Crown is coming back to Netflix, which is rather ironic. Because what do we just have this week? Another prince getting engaged to another divorced American girl, but that's a side point, right? Talk of the stock market was news, latest fashion trends, right? Fitness routines, whatever it might be. Just think about your life. What amazes you? Like just what do you follow on Instagram? Look at your Pinterest board. Like those are indications of what amazes you. Is it Jesus? Right? Is it his work to save sinners? Because we will preach what we can't help but keep, like we can't keep it inside, we preach it. So what burns from within, what amazes us is will, it will come out of our mouths one way or another. And they had witnessed something amazing. They couldn't keep it in, so they they had to share it. And even if Jesus is telling them not to do it, which I assume meant they shouldn't have done it. But I think Mark records it because they were so amazed they just couldn't help themselves. They went ahead and did it anyway. Friends, everyone needs to know about this Jesus, and that's what they understood. There's no one like this guy, so I'm going to tell you about him, because there's no one else that can compare. And friend, if that's not how you think about Jesus, if he is the furthest thing from your lips as you go through the week, you are so ready to be amazed by so many other things, it's just worth asking. If he's not worth your praise, is it because you've really never been won over to this message? You've never really encountered this Jesus. If you experience this Jesus, you can't help but express it. You talk about it. Or it could be that your heart has grown cold. You know, if that's you, one thing that helps me when my heart is cold, it's just to ask other people, hey, how did you come to faith in Christ? Just ask them for their testimony. Make it a regular habit. Because recognize every testimony is truly amazing. And even when you ask, you're reminding yourselves of that, and you're teaching that other person, this is worthy of our time. This is worthy of a conversation. This is work that will last throughout eternity. Because here's the thing, following Jesus is never conventional. 
It's never boring. And if that's your experience, I just wonder if you've ever embraced biblical Christianity. It's never boring. I mean, you notice me walk up here, right? I'm hobbling up because I'm doing stupid things. And you know, we're reading Isaiah 35 about strengthening feeble knees. I'm like, yes, strengthen feeble knees, right? It's just when you follow Jesus, he does amazing things. It is never boring. Point is, this is the work. When we share testimonies, we share of God's work of grace in our life. We remind ourselves, yeah, I was a child of hell. Jesus made me a child of heaven. He did that work alone. It wasn't me. One's ears who were deaf to God, he has unstopped them. His tongue has unchained, or rather his hand unchained my tongue to sing his praises. And friends, when you begin to understand that, when you understand his work and who he is, that conversion, right? It's not optional. Conversion is essential. Conversion, it is nothing about our wills. It is all about God's work. It's not individualistic. God is about so much more in building a community. It's so much bigger than just you and me. It's not pedestrian. It's, it's worthy of our praise, worthy of our preaching, worthy of everything we have. Lord, when we see that this Jesus indeed does all things well. God, is this, friends, is this the Jesus worthy of your praise? Do you know this Jesus? Will you know this Jesus? Oh, let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we would know you. We pray that even this parable of conversion, we would see our need, we would see your provision. We would see how you meet what we are unable to accomplish and meet in ourselves. Oh Lord, remind us again of how miraculous this work is. Lord, even as we are tired, even as other concerns may take over our minds this week, oh Lord, we pray, especially in a season of Christmas, that our hearts would be pricked again to the truth of your amazing grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.